Nightcaps of the Living Dead. Don't scream for me, Jamie Lee. Hello, everyone. Gee, with your freshly shaved head, you know who you look like a little bit? Dr. Loomis. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> you know, I was Dr. Loomis for Halloween once. What year? And I rocked it. I was Jamie um, Lee, like in high school. We we missed each other by a few years, probably. This was mid two thousands in Florida. Oh. I was Dr. Loomis. Yes. Wow. That's exciting. Did you so run around rocking. screaming like I shot him six times? His eyes were I, black. <laughs> I had the the trench coat. That he wears. You've repurposed that trench coat a few times. You were Carmen yes. San Diego one year, if I remember. Yes. <laughs> it's the same trench coat you caught me. I, I repeat know. costumes I know. Well, good for you. I like it when people put their <laughs> costumes together as opposed to buying something at, you know, Halloween Town or whatever. Um, hey, guys. We are going to discuss Halloween 2018 tonight. We're going to reference the original Halloween. We're not going to talk about the sequels, the whole series. There's Rob Zombie's Halloween, all, all that stuff. They're all wonderful films. I have a very soft spot in my heart for Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which at the time people just decimated. It has nothing to do with Michael Myers, so the audience got pissed off. But... That's a really fun rewatch if you're into it. But um, the whole train of thought is Halloween, that amazing classic, one of my top fives. It's one of your top fives too, right? Oh, it's my top one. Oh, well. Yes, my favorite horror movie of all time. Okay. So. Let me ask you, between the franchise of Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, <sighs> you only get is one. That, you only get one. This, oh, shit. That's, that's no. That's so hard. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, well, the franchise is different than the movie. Yes. So I would say Halloween as a movie is my favorite, okay. the original. Okay. The franchise has to be Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. I know it's really hard. It's still Wes Craven. Um, but, oh, fuck. It's so hard. Now I feel bad because I no, didn't say No, no, but it's a, it's a very hard Sophie's Choice kind of scenario. But I think you answered yes. that very diplomatically. We can come back at the end and you can tell me what you want to do with Scream. Maybe I'll put Scream up against something else, like Twin Peaks. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I, I'm going to say one more thing about that. The reason it's Nightmare on Elm Street is because it's related to my upbringing. Mm -hmm. I was a child growing up into a teenager with mm -hmm. the Nightmare on Elm Street series where Scream was more of a college thing. So maybe that's why. But you know how much I love my I, Nev Campbell and I Scream. Know. And Scream 5 is shooting in North Carolina right down the fucking street. Well, three hours away. In Wilmington, <laughs> right the fuck now. Courtney Cox, David Arquette, and F. Campbell are right here. And I should be stalking them if there was no COVID-19. But I can't. But anyway, and the sequel to, to this movie that we're talking about tonight also shot in Wilmington. Halloween last year, Kills, so. right? Halloween Kills, yes. And that was supposed to be so. out this year, but hopefully next year we're going to get it. Um, so, Halloween 2018. 
I I remember we saw this at the ArcLight opening weekend, yes. correct? And we saw yes. Danny Elfman. We saw Danny Elfman at the ArcLight. Yes. We were having Bloody Marys at the bar. So insider tip, if the ArcLight ever opens back up, they have the best Bloody Marys in town. It sounds weird. It's a movie theater, but whatever they do to their mix, it's just so, so delicious. They have a, they have a special mix. Yeah. That is a killer mix. And the bartender that's been there for years, he has like this handlebar mustache, really cool guy. He always looks at us like, ah, you heard about the Bloody Marys. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just hoping that this is his own concoction and that it just gets out. Anyways. Um, I think so. I think so. I think he told us that, didn't he? It's just, it's made with love. It's great. I don't know it's what amazing. it does. So, um, and it'll cure any hangover you ever had from the previous <laughs> night. That's all you need to know. That has been tried. Go watch true. a movie. If you went out in West Hollywood, in Hollywood, wherever in LA, you're like, oh, I'm so hungover. Go watch a movie at the Arclight with Bloody Marys and you'll be good to go. Kermo, you know you're describing our entire 2018 experience before this world. I miss those days. I I even thought about that when re-watching this movie because I, I just had such visceral flashbacks of, oh, we used to go to happy hour. We used to go out to bars. Or you can hang out at my place. We used to go to the movies hungover. Like all, it just really brought me back to being inside of a movie theater and not having a care in the world while watching a movie about trauma. So how you like them apples for role reversal? But anyways. And yeah, and it, it, oh God, it wasn't that long ago. Or, I was gonna say the last movie that you and I saw, and actually the last movie I saw in a movie theater was at the Arclight. It was The Color of Space, starring Nicolas, <laughs> Nicolas Cage, Cage, which we'll discuss in a separate podcast. Oh, God. That one doesn't need but, drinks. That one needs acid to just really <laughs> drive home any kind of... <sighs> yeah. So we saw Danny Elfman, and, you know, I'm a huge Oingo Boingo fan. We love his works from, you know, everything Tim Burton to the hundred or so feature films that he scored, and he won, like, four Oscars, I think. Anyways, huge Danny Elfman fan. So in our crazy-ass drunken heads, we're like, he's here to see Halloween, too, because John Carpenter is a composer. He's checking out this guy's work. We just totally made this fan fiction. It's probably not true at all, but we were just staring at him, drinking our drinks, and we're like, we're seeing a movie with Danny fucking Elfman. That's what's happening. So in my head, we we did. We like had a total movie date of the Arclight with him. Um, so the first time I saw 2018 with you, I definitely felt the themes of Me Too and Harvey mm-hmm. Weinstein, even though this movie was not um, written when the New York Times article came out. This was written, I think, 2016? 2017 um so it was shot yeah it was um the new york times article came out in 2017 yeah so this movie was already wrapped and yeah in post-production but the yeah. feminist themes about you know trauma and facing your attacker and stalking and domestic terrorism were very strong you and i were like oh this movie is on point and i thought oh is that going to change that much in 2020 well <laughs> Little did we know. Oh, Jesus. Laurie Strode is in quarantine. She is. She's in solitude. She's a prepper. I mean, this took on so many themes for me. And you too. Mm-hmm. You said that you had a very. Um, <sighs> yeah. It was, it was to me, I felt more connected to Laurie Strode than I than I did when I first watched it. I mean, I've always loved Laurie Strode. Of course. Right? She's an amazing, but, besides Jamie Lee being who she is, the character is just such a strong, intelligent 
character. I love her performance. But um, you were saying. I was saying that when I first watched it, only two years ago, right? This sounds mm -hmm. like a feeling million years ago. You know, I was like, okay, I'm watching a movie about a tr uh, this very compelling re sequel mm -hmm. that brings this 40-year trauma to life, and it's very well done by Jamie right. Lee. Right. And I was kind of observing it from the outside as a fan of what they've done with the story. Mm -hmm. Whereas now I'm like, I'm fucking Jamie Lee. I'm guzzling yeah. wine every fucking day. <laughs> I am traumatized <laughs> with what's happening, both in the world and the United States with terms of race and COVID and everything. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, I was Jamie Lee. You are gulping, gulping the wine and saying, hold on a minute with her finger uh, right? yeah. in that scene at this restaurant. <laughs> Now I'm Jamie Lee. I, it's a different movie for me. I'm like, I'm I agree. You. Oh, I get you. 100%. I agree. So, yeah, the first time I saw this, I was just like, OK, let's explore these feminist elements. And I really thought that's where I was going to go this time around. But nope, we are all victims of trauma. We are victims mm -hmm. of trauma. And um, guys, I, I hope the people listening that you're a huge Halloween fans, too. But if not, um, all you can do is just watch the original and then watch this. This is not a reboot, it is a continuation of the first movie. They've, um, and the rest of the series is established that Jamie Lee is the sister, the biological sister of Michael and Judith Myers. She was given up for adoption. Therefore, Michael Myers has this personal vendetta to kill off his family. But with this reimagination, which I love, I love, love, love this concept, this is just a random act of terrorism that happened to Jamie Lee in 1978. This guy, went on a, he went on a killing spree. Just this stranger became obsessed with her, stalked her, wanted to kill her. And now we fast forward to 40 years later to this woman who is still trying to make sense of that trauma. And um, with the establishment that it's, you know, uh, Haddonfield, Illinois, Midwestern upbringing. People don't really talk about their feelings in that time and also that area. She didn't really get therapy in this 40 years. She had a kid. She wasn't the greatest mom. She turned to alcoholism. A lot of shit happened to Lori Strode. And now we see her living in solitude, trying to make sense of those events on 1978. So honestly, the, the series is great. I think that you should watch them. But if you don't have, you know, two days to fucking spare doing a marathon, Halloween and then Halloween 2018. And they're perfect continuations to each other. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I love this series. We Halloween 2, which also gets nixed, who John Carpenter and Deborah Hill wrote, co-wrote right. mm -hmm. Halloween 2. That's when it gets established that they're siblings. So this is also kind of brushed to the side. Mm -hmm. um, the Daniel Harris, Halloween 4 and 5, that we all grown to love. Yep. You're like, you know, forget it. Um, forget it. Nobody's related. This is just like a this own thing, this own story. Even Jamie Lee's own return to the series with Halloween H2O mm -hmm. in 1998, all oh, 20 years ago, the 20 year anniversary sequel, mm -hmm. but we see how her doing something that she, like what she did here. Mm -hmm. She's returning to the role. She deals with alcoholism in that, in that movie as mm -hmm. well, but that movie is very different from this one. And I think that's fascinating. So this is not the first time Jamie Lee has returned to play the role. There is a different timeline, right? Yeah, there's a, um, yeah. I think she dies in that movie in H2O as well, correct? No, no, no. She, oh, doesn't, she doesn't die. Know. She dies in the sequel to H2O. Yes. That's Resurrection. Yeah. 
which is so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so Jamie Lee and John Carpenter themselves have said whenever they first started making Halloween, it, there wasn't a whole lot of depth to it. They were just making a movie about the babysitter getting stalked and killed. Like, that was mm-hmm. it. However, I feel because Jamie Lee is such an awesome and multi-layered person that her natural essence brought to the role, she's not a victim. I mean, on paper she is, but in the movie she's being chased and stalked, but she just shows this strength and, I don't know, this charisma. You were with her every second of the way. So you see that in the first Halloween to how we have Halloween 2018, Lori has lived a life and seen some shit and tried to conquer her demons. And it's just such a fascinating performance. And you can tell that Jamie Lee really, really just got to the depth of this character. And therefore, while there's so many homages to... Oh, shit. Something cracked in my apartment. That was really creepy. Oh, my God. Michael Myers. Jamie Lee just walk in there. This is really creepy. Oh my god! All right. Somebody, something. There's no earthquakes. We've had earthquakes <laughs> We've before had earthquakes on this on the podcast. During <laughs> the Silence of the Lambs episode. That was crazy. Okay, so I'm just gonna finish that with uh, <laughs> um, the first movie was not made with a lot of depth, and then this one, Jamie Lee has said that she she felt the script itself was so poetic that it deals with trauma on every level um she loved all the imagery just in the script alone where she has to go back to that damn closet you know just like and and i noticed this time around there's a lot of triggering objects that you know Mm -hmm. everybody has a thing Mm -hmm. that triggers them and um yeah so it's also incredible to have a horror sequel happen 40 years later mm-hmm. like i think you just said what you just said what is what brings us back to this original halloween mm-hmm. i mean this movie would not have been made if people were not obsessed with the original halloween for 40 fucking years yeah right yeah so i'm trying to imagine okay what would laurie Strode be like what would michael be like mm-hmm. you know if she had children this is what this movie is kind of presenting us with right right and so even though, like you said, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were like, oh, we're just making a fun movie. Baby, it was called The Babysitter Murders mm-hmm. um, before Mustafa Akkad mm-hmm. decided to set it in Halloween. Um, so like, okay, so it's The Babysitter Murders in Halloween. And I think you really made a really good point in the fact that Jamie Lee's essence bring something new to the role. Mm-hmm. This could have been, I mean, I guess it's, it was one of the first slashers. It, it, it yielded all these imitators like Friday the 13th and so forth mm-hmm. in, the, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. But our first final girl, right? Or I guess maybe the one from Texas Chainsaw is the first one, but yeah. Jamie Lee is considered the essence of the final girl. Right. There's something about her in the original movie. She's like, you know what? This shit is happening to me. It's traumatizing, but there's a sense of strength mm-hmm. in her. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the essence of, of Laurie Strode, but also the essence of Jamie Lee that then David Gordon Green picks up on and takes to the next level in this movie. Is this person a victim or is this person trying to make sense who- of these events like we all are doing every day right now? We're just like, who, I, who was I before? Who am I now? 
how will I face this demon? And so with trauma, it doesn't even matter the circumstance. It's uh, you, you can react maybe three or four ways across the board. You can do the fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. Um, you can bury it so deep into your soul that you just don't deal with it. And then subconsciously through your behaviors and actions and speech, it will try to absolve itself. Or, um, or you can live in complete fear and let that really dictate your personality. You can be really paranoid and afraid um, or also shamed, ashamed that you caused this event. Um, and I really felt that in this performance, honestly, if you just watch Halloween and Halloween 2018 back to back, you really see that character arc of a woman who did not have a lot of therapy and grew up isolated. I mean, we don't even know what happened to Laurie Strode's parents. Did they die young? I mean, we, we don't know what her backstory is, what happened in that time. And then we see that she raises Judy Greer and she has the, the granddaughter. And then, of course, because she did not know herself in, in this time frame, Judy Greer resents her through this movie. I mean, it's a fascinating discovery of familial relationships. Um, but yeah, it brought me very much into 2020. I really thought, this is 2018. I'm just going to pick up the same things. Nope, nope, nope. We are no, all traumatized. Yeah. Because now we're not observing the movie from the outside. We're on the inside of her headspace. We are in that shed, Kevin McAllistering the shit out of this house and setting up booby traps and prepping for the end of the world. We yeah. really are. We have an election next week. So in that, I'm going to drink. <laughs> what are yep. you drinking? Are you drinking Skyfall? I am drinking Let the Skyfall. Uh, and I know we say this every time, but it's so good. Well, guys. I changed it up. So I changed it up. And I want to drink red <gasps> okay. wine. It's, but it's 90 degrees. I have like sweat dripping down my legs right now. It's terrible. Um, and you're off in that crisp North Carolina autumn weather, right? With the leaves changing, pumpkin spice bullshit everywhere. Yes, but tonight we have an, uh, a pretty cool night. It's our coldest night that we've had, but apparently it's going to come back to being warm next week. Yeah, so but you have a cold night. There. I don't even want to hear that. I know, I know. Whatever. It's not quite 90s and 80s as you Ugh. are over there. It's like 60s. So I 50s. have my red wine ready to go, but tonight I, I am doing a hard kombucha, and it's called Strange Beast. And it's spelled like strange, <gasps> like there's I'm a strain. I'm jealous of these hard kombuchas that you've been having. They are so great. They're good for the stomach, they the are. flora and the fauna. <laughs> I like, yeah. I feel like you get your alcohol and your goodie, your yogurt at the same time. <laughs> your goodies, your goodie yogurt. I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's like a seven percent. It's life. great. I am I'm turned on to it because I like vinegary drinks as a whole. And um, yeah, there's like some tea in this situation, so I don't go to sleep in this 90 degree weather as I'm drinking. I mean, I I find it refreshing. So yeah, strange beast. So during this rewatch of Halloween 2018, I had Mustafa Akkad in my mind a lot because, and I don't know if you guys know this, he's the godfather of the Halloween series. He was the executive producer of all the sequels. He basically owned the franchise. Um, and you know, there was, there will be no Halloween without Mustafa. Right. And he was from Syria. He was an immigrant from Syria mm-hmm. and him and his daughter died in a terrorist attack in Jordan mm. when this movie was being made or right around, oh. I'm not exactly sure what year it was, but it was around the time wow. that this movie was being conceived or made. 
Um, his son Malik Akkad is now the executive producer of this movie and oh, the, he took the, over the, the, the family biz. That's cool. He took over. That's awesome. So he, you know, they're kind of like the Strodes. It's a family affair. <laughs> um, I like that analogy. So, you know, a lot of people don't know that the Halloween movies are produced by Syrian immigrants, right? right. And given the times that we live in, that's kind of like an awesome fact. And this character, the new Loomis in this movie, um, called Dr. Sartain mm -hmm. is played by a Turkish actor. Mm -hmm. And I, for some reason in my mind, I know he's Turkish, Mustafa was Syrian, but they're both kind of from that Middle Eastern region. But so you the thought accent it was, is very similar. Yeah, I, I totally. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I was like, oh, what if, because that was like an interesting choice that they cast a Turkish actor to play this role. We like to get some but, representation you know, in there and also to honor the inspiration behind this entire franchise. I think that's a very, I, I didn't know that. I, I totally see that. I think that's really so, cool. So then they replace Loomis, which of course he can't be in the movie because he's, Dr., uh, Donald Pleasant's passed away in 1996 Aww. with this Turkish actor. I'm like, why are they doing this strange juxtaposition? And I was like, it's to honor Mustafa Akkad. I think it's that's saying great. Mustafa is the guy who never wanted Michael to die. And this character is like pro Michael in a way, right? Because he's, I mean, we'll, we'll get into what happens in the movie. But I was like, oh, it's like Mustafa. He always loved Michael more than anyone because mm -hmm. it's the person that keeps coming back every movie and yeah. he loves the franchise and he loves the story. Um, so I just kind of love that. I, think I that's saw that really connection sweet. There's and I, like a, I love that about it. Because, you know, this this whole movie has such a a soul. And it's funny because they keep on <laughs> referring to Michael Myers, like not having a soul and just dead inside and everything in the first one. But this movie just has so much heart. And I think they honor Deb Hill. I think they honor mm -hmm. Mustafa. Um, and John Carpenter did the score, you know, so they got the OG back. With his son, With Cody, Cody Carpenter. Cody Carpenter. And, son uh, of a Adrian Barbeau, star <laughs> of The Fog, which we talked about in a previous episode. Which, just so you know. Just so you know. Which, in that episode of The Fog, you know how you and I, we talked about, um, we were wondering if Jamie Lee and Janet shared screen time? Um, oh, yes. Yes. At the very end, but not... Yeah, like they they didn't share. It. Yeah, they they had scenes adjacent to each other, but they weren't interactive with each other. And you and I were like, oh, did they act with each other often, or was that kind of like a one and done deal? I saw an interview with her recently where after Halloween, she you know the offers were not f flooding in for her. Um, she was just still doing like Charlie's Angels and bullshit like that. But she was on the Love Boat with Janet <gasps> Lee and Janet Lee played her mom and I guess that the whole episode is she's on a honeymoon and Janet Lee's her mom on the honeymoon with her or something like that so oh wow that's it, fascinating yeah I just I love their working relationship if they're just kind of like separate but they're like they're not taking away too much from the other but just that support on set I don't know and that kind of brought me back to Halloween 2018 I bet Jamie Lee really dug into those familial relationships and brought that awesome honesty to the role that you know that you don't typically see in horror movies and i mean we kind of kind of have to mention they did share the, i guess the one scene i guess in a motion picture mm -hmm. outside of the love boat 
is the scene from Halloween H2O. There's only one scene between the two of them. Yes, yeah. Where Jenna Lee is going to get, and they use this, the, a, a car that looked like the car from Psycho. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the showers, and they have this uh, like kind of fun scene. Oh. And I always remember that, like their wink wink to like both of their famous roles, her, Psycho, Jamie Lee. Oh, I love that. So. That's super cool. And it, but, I did, I heard an interview too that she, um, the young actress that I just call her Little Strode. You know her name because you're a professional. Andy Medishock, yes. the Duke granddaughter. Yes. Yes. I just call oh, her. Oh, she's, she's yeah. amazing. She's wonderful in this. And Jamie Lee has been on the record saying she's like, she is the spitting image of my mother when she was younger. So she <sighs> created this bond with her on set. She was just like, she reminded me so much of my mother. And, and I've, and I've read that the new movie Halloween Kills is all about her. So Andy Aww. takes on good because I think she's a good actress. Mantle. I like her. Like Jamie Lee will be in it, but it's really Andy's movie. Mm-hmm. And see, because she just went through the trauma right before in the other movie, she's gonna be like reacting to it right away. Right, we're gonna see how night, she right? processes these yeah. events. With the help of her grandmother, who went through this, maybe not who couldn't deal with it because she didn't have anybody to talk about it, mm-hmm, right? In a way, mm-hmm, right? So she's gonna mm-hmm. have a direct person, right? And that's what I—it's gonna be amazing. But let's talk about this movie. Let's talk it's about it. Very excited to watch the sequel, which we have to wait another year due to fucking COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, how this movie opens? Let's talk about the opening. Um, really quick this opening is very powerful mm-hmm, to me mm-hmm. and I remember you and I had the same reaction yes to this opening yeah um, had at the same time I, I had the same reaction the second time around too I was just like damn this movie opens strong and I remember feeling the strength of that opening and a kind of gutter got gut level at the time this time, like, oh, let me think about why I have this reaction. And it's there's something about the idea, like, speak, right? And I think this is repeated in the movie a couple of times. They want Michael to speak. Michael oh. doesn't speak. They want Michael to speak. And these podcasters are all about, you know, it's all voice, all sound, right? Uh-huh. Like we are. Like uh-huh. The podcasters are us, yes. which we'll get to in a second. There's a redhead and a British guy, not quite a Puerto Rican. Yeah, but you both okay. have those fun <laughs> accents. <laughs> and they that both like, die in the movie. We would 100% die. <laughs> we would. <laughs> we Within w- this... Within the first 20 minutes, yeah. right? Like Janet Lee and Psycho. We'd be like, oh, we're, no, we're so oblivious. We have our wine going, what? Who is that sound? Dead. Dead. <laughs> yeah. Which is okay. Um, so the podcasters go to the mental institution. They and- go to the mental institution, and there's this kind of like, there's a lot of sound in this, in this first sequence. Mm-hmm. But they're like, they're walking in and there's all people mumbling and there's a lot of things that they show you. And then mm-hmm. they go in and they're going to kind of confront Michael. And one reaction that I had, I connected with Michael in this scene this time around. Huh. Let me tell you why. Yeah, tell me why. Because when, I, I forget what his, I think his name is Aaron, the, the podcaster, the British podcaster. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're both British, but the, the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, when he pulls out the mask and he says... Speak, speak, Michael. And I was like, oh, my God. It's going to be all of us. 
you know, out of a year or two, I thought about when someone that pulls out an N95 mask. Uh-huh. It's going to be such a triggering response. I thought that too. I'm like, am I going to yep. go to the dentist or a hospital and they're wearing that? I'm like, ah, I just freak the fuck out. But also I can imagine you wanting to elicit a, a response from somebody because, you know, because you're dramatic. I can just imagine you pulling out the mask and be like, look at it, Michael, look at it. Look, look. At it. And I was like, I'm Michael. When I look at a mask two years from now, Aww. I will be like, we're all going to be traumatized of by course. this Of course, we're going to be really right? traumatized by this. So, we're going to look at sanitizer and toilet paper and masks all in a very different light. So I connected with Michael. I was like, it's a COVID-19 mask shoved in my face two years from now, and I'm going to fucking be angry about it. And you're not even going to look gonna, at it. You're going to just keep your back to that mask. I'm going to keep my back and let the other people scream around me. Well, fucking masks. And also, let me ask you this. Where you are in North Carolina, is, Har- is Halloween on steroids or no? Um, you know what? Not yet. Not yet. Because huh. um, here, here it's on steroids, and I'm here for it. I love it. Because, I mean, hello, LA is dramatic. There's a bunch of us artsy people with masks and paint and, you know, a lot of free time. We have nothing else to do. So... I can see everybody's creative mind kind of being like, Halloween, here we go, let's do something fun. Or maybe being like, the news is so traumatic and horrifying every day that skeletons and zombies and witches don't seem so bad. So let's embrace. They seem comforting. Yeah. I mean, it's October. I I love watching horror movies in October. This is like a religion to me. Yeah. So it's very comforting to watch horror movies, despite the times that we live in. I have a couple of friends who are not huge horror fans, and I see them dipping their little toe in the waters. Ooh, yeah, that's good. and I'm like, that's don't, good. I'm like, don't jump off the deep end and go to Exorcist. Why don't you just kind of wade in with a little poltergeist or <laughs> dip into the kiddie pool? Yeah, first, just, just put right? your little toe in with um, some Spielberg horror, and then work your way up to freaking, you know. But uh, but yeah, I was thinking because of COVID this time around, I did think about the masks traumatizing people. We're all going to kind of be Michael Myers in that sense. But also it brought me to Halloween. I just feel like people are way more jazzed about it this year than they have been in the past. And I honestly thought in like around in the summertime and we're all thinking like, okay, holiday plans. Are we going to be able to get on a flight? I mean, what's the world going to be like then? Um, I honestly thought that Halloween would be the one thing to kind of save our sanity because you can wear a mask. You can wear a mask. You can stay at home. You can throw <laughs> your candy true. at people. So what about the West Hollywood Festival? Is that oh, happening? Oh, I think that's not going to happen. Happening. No. But I was like, oh, people can wear masks. So I thought but yeah, I had a you would think. in my head. <laughs> and, and just think about it. I mean, like my train of thought was in the summertime of like, okay, we've all grown accustomed to being in hot weather with masks and wearing them constantly you know on halloween when you're just kind of like a hot mess and you're drunk and you're walking around and sweaty and then your mask comes off by the end of the night and makeup is running and all sorts of shit it's like well we've all kind of had some mask training so we'd all be really good and we'd wear our masks so the next thing that i want to talk about is like i see that the movie kind of sets up uh, Michael in this awesome opening sequence mm-hmm. with the masks. Mm-hmm. Then we have the nostalgic reopening credits, right? With the pumpkin right. and the reverse time lapse, which I thought was pretty clever. Lapse. And the dance beat, the da, 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 da
<laughs> and you get almost the same font that you saw in the original movie. Mm-hmm. So you're really kind of nostalgically brought back to mm-hmm. the franchise, right? Right. And then the next sequence is the podcasters visiting Laurie's Road, mm-hmm. which again, you get the villain in the first sequence and then you get the heroine in the second sequence, right? And, and she's kind of- hard. She's been living in solitude. We see she's not fucking around. And she also won't talk, right? In mm-hmm. a way, right? So there's a parallel. Like the podcasters are trying to get answers for people mm. and they're not getting them. Mm. So one of the things that I noticed is that they, the podcasters pay bring out this $3,000 to pay for the interview. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I thought of Psycho and the $40,000 that Janet Lee steals from the bank. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the inciting incident for the whole movie. Right. Um, huh. And I connected again. I, get, I made a Janet Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis connection between Aww. money because the only reason she accepts the interview is she wants those $3,000 that then we find out she's going to give to her granddaughter so she can fucking flee the country to Mexico. <laughs> And not go to college, which we'll get to there in a second. <laughs> um, so I thought that was an interesting kind of moment that the only way they can make her speak is to give her some form of payment. And she doesn't even tell them that much, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Lori's house is also like a prison. There's surveillance cameras. There's shots of surveillance cameras at Smith Grove where um, Michael is being held. Yeah, she always has an and, eye on him. She's very aware of, of her attacker, what he's doing at all times. And I got to say, when we saw this in 2018, I mean, of course, you know, if you're a Halloween fan, you're like, she's a prepper. She's not just a doomsday prepper and fucking crazy. This event happened to her. She is honestly, it's rational thought. This guy is still alive. So she's going to do everything in her power. She's not necessarily living in fear. She's just going to be prepped for the next time he comes back because he will come back. She's not an optimist. She's a realist. And that brought me to 2020 of all the times that we all kind of made fun of those doomsday preppers and you know they had their sellers mm-hmm. and spent all this money and all this other stuff and it's like okay we haven't gotten to that horrible resort where there's no food and all that but that first week of of coronavirus this it that image will haunt me for the rest of my life how the stores were packed with people people were frantic and shoving each other and no toilet paper or frozen food even it was like the weirdest things were gone like all the beans and pasta i mean which it makes sense but just seeing it on the shelves you're like oh all this stuff i used to just like walk by and go that's 99 cents and full of sodium like it's a hot commodity and um it brought me back to that Yes, like a bunker with canned goods will no longer seem so crazy in a movie. Yeah. After this year. Agreed, right? yes. We've seen those characters, right? Very the, well the said. The 1950s, yeah. Cold War era, the nuclear is coming, I have a bunker. In the Where, back. And in which society of- freaks out. They're just like, oh, there's no cause for you to feel this way. This woman has a legit cause. We all have a legit cause. I've talked to people that that, um, they work in the mental health field and they've talked about, like, I don't have OCD, but I've had family members that have different forms of OCD. And I've reached out to them to be like, help me understand this. And OCD is not the typical thing in television when it's like, oh, you got to knock seven times or wash your hands. Now we are all OCD. We have to wash our hands after. I mean, Jack Nicholson, as good as it gets, will never be a weirdo anymore. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. 
but for some OCD elements, people just feel that if they don't behave a certain way, then the worst will happen. And that's where we are with Lori. She, as a result of her trauma, without going into the deep depths of it, that I, I think she has a bit of OCD and, um, and she's isolated. One of the things that I thought about here, what is the boogeyman as a concept, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, we call Michael Myers is also the boogeyman, right? Mm -hmm. In the first movie. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this killer who's a human being and a man. And then Jamie Lee in this first scene that we see her in says, oh, this guy who killed six people is a, a a man and I'm the victim who the yes. car divorced twice, a basket case. Mm -hmm. And I thought this entire speech that she gives up is extremely powerful mm -hmm. because it, it immediately highlights in plain language what sexism is all about and right. what victim blaming is all about and victim right. shaming. Um, and which has been a fucking insane issue mm -hmm. in all of these cases of sexual assault and um, domestic violence and so forth, right? right? And so to me, I, this is one of the, already 10 minutes in, one of the most powerful movies, in, mo moments in the movie, Yeah, right? right? She spells it out and she's like, look at what you're thinking, podcasters from hell. We'll <laughs> die in 10 more minutes. Um, we, we love podcasters. We are podcasters. But they're like, you are already doing this for the wrong reason. Exactly. Right? They are wanting to exploit the story. They don't care about her feelings. They're not going to be like, hey, girl, you okay? They're, they're there to exploit a fascination. Even with um, the Harvey Weinstein article, the, the two women and also Ronan Farrow that did his own thing, all these journalists had such a beautiful empathy to their writing. Their job is to state the facts, but they wanted to convey how horrible and how long and how how everybody turned a blind eye. Yeah, how unacknowledged. That's, yes. They wanted to display how unacknowledged and and horrible these events were for these women. And these women would come in dozens and report this terrible activity and nobody would believe them. Or if they did, they suffered punishment. If they signed an NDA, they would be like scared out of town. They would, they would feel suicidal. All these horrible effects due to this gross man in power. The first time seeing this, I really thought Michael Myers and Harvey Weinstein had a lot in common. But for this time around... Well, both in their 60s, right? You can make right. the parallel. They're the same age. Well, well, Michael Myers has right? more hair. <laughs> yeah. He also seems like he can move around a lot quicker. When she says that, of like, all this happened to me, I'm the crazy one, I noticed for the rest of the film... As far as, you know, the whole victim blaming thing goes, it even happens with her daughter. It happens with Judy Greer. If, if Jamie Lee has any sort of emotion or hysteria, she's like, oh, you're a drunk and you're doing this. Oh, you're doing that. But she negotiates it. And true, there can be bad behavior in history in which you kind of judge a person just naturally. You're like, oh, well, this person gets drunk and they say really fucking dumb things. Or this person, like, goes to an 11 every time we hang out. Like, sure, behavioral history does have a have a part in how you view somebody 
But for Jamie Lee, she's very aware that nobody believes her. She's very aware how other people see her. And that's just horrifying and heartbreaking to me. She actually had this really bad thing happen to her. And as she's still trying to process it, she's still worried about how society views her. And which I love that she told the podcasters to fuck off, you know, but. And get her money. Mm -hmm. So one of going off that line, one of the most interesting scenes that comes like I think right after that is when they introduce the kids, Andy and her friends, and they're walking down the street. It's mm -hmm. kind of like a throwback to the Lori and her friends yeah. walking down the street. Yeah. Um, and they have one of the friends is um, Miles Robbins, son of Tom, Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. And he's a tall drink of water, just like his daddy. Yes, he's beautiful. Um, <laughs> but he says something like oh in the you know when there's it's kind of like a line that's trying to do the retcon part of mm -hmm. like there were no sequels so it's like oh what's the big deal these people got killed she survived it's not a big deal it's not a major there was no mm -hmm. 20 people who died it was like three people four people who died yeah well to and, the rest of the three town of her friends and then her to being, the rest of the town it was it was this thing that happened one night but this thing traumatized this woman for the rest of her life so it's interesting to hear somebody else kind of just like throw it away. So like throw it away. Like I was like, oh, it's not a big deal. There, there were no ten movies of a murder spree. <laughs> Michael Myers has not killed a hundred people. He just killed three people, and this woman survived, and she should be okay. Um, and that kind of throw away. I mean, and it's making a wink, wink at the fact that they threw away all the sequels, mm -hmm. and in fact, Michael Myers is just the killer of one night of right. events and about three or four people. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, what's the big deal? Why is he so... And it's like, no, the big deal is that it traumatizes one person because one person matters. I have a question. And that's so powerful. It I is. I, I have a question just on that tangent. If coronavirus has not... didn't last as long as it has, like if, if coronavirus lasted only for three weeks or a month versus this entire year do you think that we would still be altered as a culture as a society i think we would have blown over it i think if coronavirus only lasted for a month we'd be like oh remember that that was a fucking weird time we we wouldn't have the life changes that we are implementing right now do you agree or do you disagree oh it's, it's so the length of the quarantine or whatever mm-hmm the new normal, whatever people right. want to call it. Um, how long does it, how long is enough to traumatize all of yeah. us? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to lose a year at this point, mm -hmm. right? We're, mm -hmm. we're pretty much almost there. Yeah. I think it tests our rapid new cycle culture where like something gets oh it went there was a news story mm -hmm. something happened mm -hmm. we throw it away the next day because we live in this hyper speed news information mm -hmm. but when a year goes by and this is the only news that everyone's worried about yeah i think that changes things mm -hmm. so i think that the fact that it's we're we're living in a in a world or we were living in a world where things happen pretty quickly and they get they have a life shelf or a shelf life that's like really fast mm -hmm. this is a news that can't go away so quickly right 
And we're, and we're all enduring this, which, you know, for a lot of trauma victims, it's usually an incident that happens to them. And, and also kind of going back to our Babadook discussion on grief, I feel like those two things are hand in hand, grief and, and trauma of it's a personal experience and everybody has a different reaction and how they adapt to their lives. But I feel like for the most part, a lot of people feel very alienated and misunderstood. And for this, we're all collectively feeling isolated. We're, we're so sick of being in our homes and trying to be with our friends and we're Zooming and, and trying to connect, but it's still not what it used to be, you know? And so I kind of feel that it's, it's interesting watching this movie now because if this had just happened to Lori, which it did, it just happened to her and he wreaked havoc on this town for one night and the rest of the town just hears the urban legend. If he, if we had stayed with the, the series, um, which once again, I love that they did this, that it was a random act of terror and not that, you know, he had a motive, but just spitballing. If he had become this ominous presence of everybody, the town's afraid of Michael Myers on Halloween and you got to like shut her up and, you know, you, you got to go trick or treating, but you got to be back by 10 because this is going to happen. What you're saying is if he was a, a kind of threat, if he was a representation of violence coming to your doorstep, then I feel like Jamie happened. Lee wouldn't be so crazy. I think she'd be like, okay, like I'm going to be the most extreme person, but everybody's everyone, everyone on board. Everyone knows what's up. Yeah, and instead she's that's judged. Not, and that's just so, that infuriates me. <laughs> it pisses me off. That that's not the that she's story that this movie's telling. And I, fact, yes. I know for a fact that, I mean, and this goes beautifully with the theme of the movie, because this is something that only happened to Laurie Strode. Only she understands what happened because mm -hmm. she was the only surviving victim from the first time around. Right. What the movie's presenting is not like, oh, everyone knows that the serial killer is awful. No, nobody knows that the serial killer is awful. It's very much till it happens to you. Like the Lady Gaga song that she yes. wrote for that movie about, oh. about campus rapes. Excellent it's point. Till it, till it happens, till it to, happens you. to you. And mm -hmm. that's the plight of women who have been victimized by sexual assault, by Weinstein, by anyone. Mm -hmm. No one understands the situation until it happens to you. Right. And my understanding about the sequel is that the movie, what David Gordon Green does, is like he takes the trauma that happened to Laurie Strode to everyone else's doorstep. It's mm. a till it happens to you movie. Ooh, I like all, that. And it's a COVID-19 movie. Yeah. The trauma happens to everyone. Mm -hmm. And I love that their starting point in this version of the series is one person's trauma that no one understands. Right. That only she understands. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks she's crazy and no one believes her. Yep. By the second movie, Everyone is involved in this trauma very, very quickly, which is a mirror to the COVID-19 situation. Mm -hmm. And in fact, David Gordon Green has said, I really wish this movie would have come out this year. I know we can't show it this year huh. because it's very relevant to what's going on. Oh, interesting. It's about a town that goes insane after the trauma that one person suffered becomes the trauma that everyone oh, suffering. Oh, wow. I really like him. I don't know too much about him. I've read a few interviews with him. And oh, he's I, great. I think he's, he's great. awesome. I think he's one to watch. Um, all right, so we have Tim Robinson. We have Little Strode. The next thing that I want to talk about mm -hmm. is the representation of, since we, this is a movie about a woman's trauma, the representation of gender in this movie, right? And we can yes. go a little bit into this because yeah. it plays 
There is three women who are at the center of the movie, the three generations of the mm -hmm. Strode family. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I noticed about the movie is that it examines what gender is today versus what gender was 40 years ago, right? Right. For, for Laurie Strode. Mm -hmm. And so it has these representations of like millennial gender fluidity, like, right? Like the, the, The boyfriend, oh, he, you know, they do the Bunny and Clyde. And yeah, and whenever is, you and I saw that too, Bonnie. we're like, oh, this is like a hip modern couple. Like, they get it. There's, you know, he's dresses, you know, Bonnie and she is Clyde, which pays off beautifully at the end scene because she's in men's kind of clothes and it's like an homage to Jamie Lee wearing her blue shirt and dark pants in the, the OG movie. In the original movie, yeah. which was a, a result of that kind of pantsuit 70s that, right, that Hillary vibe. Clinton came to. Rock in her days, yes. but that feminist movement, that for, that yeah. that wave of feminism that was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I noticed is that the movie's telling you, "Oh yeah, we have all these cool, gender fluid, awesome in culture. We think things have changed. We have gay marriage, mm -hmm. but we at the same time we don't." So by that the boyfriend character who is like the coolest boyfriend ever mm -hmm. who dresses a woman to do this Halloween costume mm -hmm. at the end of the movie revealing it's just a fucking costume he is a toxic male yeah he By is the way he treats her he gaslights her he made out with some other girl yeah. and it's like and she I mean I love how she reacts to it but it's the idea is like we have things have changed on the surface But the core of the problem remains. And that's why Michael Myers still exists. Mm -hmm. Michael Myers is a symbol of toxic mask, white masculinity as a white mask. Mm -hmm. And he's a rapist. He's a predator. He's an abuser of women. And even though it's been 40 years, right, since what's going on in the 70s, through these other characters, including the geeky friend who turns out to be also kind of toxic. Oh, and he was terrible too. Yeah, this time worst. around. Yeah, I was the just like, worst. Oh, I'm, yeah, I totally pick up what you're putting down with the, the faux ally situation because here it, it was interesting because the, the portrayal of men in this movie where you have the sheriffs and um, you have the dad, they're kind of, they're, they're older white men and they are allies. There's like that scene with the, um, The dad, he's kind of like a, a redneck and he's taking his clearly gay son mm -hmm. shooting. Like he, he's going to go hunting and the kid has this awesome raspy voice. He's like, dad, that's, that's my jam. I love dancing. You know, I'm going to do this fishing and hunting thing with you on the weekends. But just so you know, I'm doing this to appease you. But, you know, dancing's my life. And the dad is not a bad guy. He's not a bad character. He's just like, okay, well, little lumpy. Like, he's still trying to project what he thinks a masculine ideal is. He's just like, well, I just want to make you happy and whatever, but we're going to do this. Like, he's still just kind of hoping his, his gay kid will snap out of it. But they have this understanding, and they love each other. He's not a bad guy. The kid does not resent him. They understand and accept each other. And that's one of the first major kills of the movie, too, whenever, you know, Michael Myers goes off and, and the little mental patient bus and um mm -hmm. and the dad and little lumpy and the truck are behind it and they see the mental patients wandering around in, in the road and the dad goes he says like oh somebody's hurt i'm gonna go like you can see this is a caring character so just to your point of these two younger guys um 
they're going through the motions of being like, oh, I, I care for you and I'm going to dress up, you know, as a woman. And so aren't we hip? Aren't we cool? And like the, the friend character, just like, I'm going to walk you home. And then he tries to make out with her. And he's like, you're giving me these signs. And it doesn't match up. Like they're, they, they, there's a disconnect. Yeah. Whereas this, this father figure, it was the complete reversal. He's just like, mm-hmm. we're going to go hunting and we're going to do this. But I listen to you. I love you. Thank you. Like, I mean, it was so interesting to see that divide. Between in, the in, in a way that the kid character is someone who's out at a young age. Yeah, which he's is and accepted. Something very contemporary, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess you have these kind of, again, these two are contrasting. Mm-hmm. And so I think this movie is an essay of gender mm-hmm. and masculinity. Mm-hmm. And kind of presenting where we are at today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a beautiful example where it's like, oh. And in fact, that kid could even be transgender. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? I, you can interpret him however you want. Right. And he dies like Annie did in the first movie. Right? And which, yes, yes. I was shocked that they showed his on-screen death. And not because they killed a kid. It's because in the 70s, when all this gritty grindhouse shit was going on, people were getting chainsawed up left and right. Nobody really showed the death of children on screen. It was always kind of implied. They thought that was maybe a step too far. And where we are as a culture, it took me out of the movie to go like, oh, yeah, well, there's shootings every day. And like, we live in a very violent society now that this, this is a, a reflection of the times of like, oh, they're going to kill this kid that had this loving parent and was living his best life once again random act of violence that really struck me in the first 20 minutes of this movie and they almost kill the baby right yeah remember that scene mm-hmm. where he walks by the baby by the way the baby's voice is done by jamie lee curtis stop it fact. oh my yes. god that's so fun she, she has this like weird like thing where she can do a baby's voice <laughs> so that's actually her voice yeah what can't she baby. do she's amazing um so already the movie is playing with are stereotypes that the original movie was playing with and then bringing them to 2018, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought was interesting is when Jamie Lee goes visits um, the granddaughter who she has a bond with, right? Mm -hmm. Allison is her name in the movie. Yeah, obviously shit went down between she and Judy Greer. She couldn't handle her trauma or raise this child correctly, but now she and the granddaughter have a bond. Have a bond. And mm-hmm. she's like, here's your $3,000. Fuck college. Go to Mexico. Go find yourself. Be your free spirit. Don't be what society expects of you. That's what I picked up. But also, like, there's something, I think, when you couple that with these representations of what she's going through in college with her boyfriend and the, and the geeky guy, mm-hmm. it's like, this is a toxic environment. And... I mean, honestly, Jamie Lee is instructing her to say, pull yourself out of that. Right. You don't have to be here. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, she, I, I feel like she's Mexico, well, which I think is awesome, given all the fucking immigration. Well, I bullshit I, that's been going on. I feel like she's really trying to express society is going to put you in a box. Get the fuck out of that box because you're not going to make anybody happy mm-hmm. but yourself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And. So already 25, 30 minutes in, um, we're getting a radical indictment of gender 
relationships mm -hmm. in American culture, mm -hmm. right? And another strange thing, which I this character is going to come back in this sequel, so I'm very curious to see whether the, the boyfriend who turns out to be toxic, mm -hmm. he also says that he's like 70% um, Native American. Oh, Did you catch that? I didn't catch oh, that Oh, I noticed all. all these little details. At the dinner table. He looked like some little Brooklyn hipster. I did not. <laughs> Wait, what? You no, know, he says he's 70% Cherokee. Okay. Which I think I think the actor might be as well. So this is not no. bullshit. Okay. Um, and it sounds like a, it's total. You don't even notice it. It's like their banter at the dinner table before um, Jamie Lee shows up after she saw Michael getting out of jail, right? Mm -hmm. And she had that like fucking I'm having the like airplane alcohol little bottle mm -hmm. into my mouth. The Halle Berry um, Monsters Ball. Yes. <laughs> set up. Yes. I was like, oh. um, So all these little details about gender and then like race are thrown in there. And I'm going to get later on into all these African-American or black actors who are on the fringes of this movie, including the little kid and the sheriff of the town who's black. Mm -hmm. um, the little kid is so incredible. He stole. And he'll be back in the sequel. Good, because he Center stole State. the shit out of that scene later. But um, yes. So then it's just this very little hint, and this is David Gordon Green's, because you know he started his career. He made the movie George Washington, which is about black kids um, in, in urban areas and so forth. So he's very much a, he was made a lot of movies about race, even though he's white. Mm -hmm. He's an ally. He, but this is like what he wants to talk about in yeah. movies. Yeah. So he sprinkles all these like little things about, okay, there's a problem with America and mm -hmm. race and gender. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to kind of throw this into this fun horror movie. Mm -hmm. And I love that he does this because every I time too. I watch the movie, I notice something new, like the 70% Cherokee line. I never wow. noticed that before. That, yeah, I, I totally um, missed that. That's really interesting. Um, And then in that scene... Again, I connected so strongly with the stress that Jamie Lee is going through. It's so raw. And the way she gustles that wine when she comes in. After you could relate Michael. to that, couldn't you? I, I have done that. I have <laughs> no, done that in my COVID times. Not I have you. done that. I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to oh. pour myself a glass of wine in honor of Jamie Lee's. Totally justifiable alcoholism. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to raise my finger and, and guzzle it. Oh, that's mm. beautiful. <laughs> because I never got it. It's when you're really stressed out, gulping down alcohol really calms you down. And that's what she's going through. That is a very out, simple thing. I mean, we're all, I, I feel like a lot of us are hitting the sauce pretty strong, but a lot of us are also living completely different lives. I feel like we're working out more. We're being more productive. Some people are staying in bed. I don't know. Everybody's just kind of, thrown conventional rules out the window anytime that i mm -hmm. i drink around like you know seven i go oh it's a little late to open this bottle of wine in france they probably open this at two but for for my liver and and productivity i'm like okay i'll start drinking after seven. No, oh, yeah it's, it's these rules of the courtroom about drinking have gone out the window mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't know this, but Jamie Lee is an AA, mm -hmm. ex-alcoholic, drug mm -hmm. addict. She mm -hmm. speaks about it openly. Pretty openly, So this yeah. role is very 
very real to her, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why she loved the script. She's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've dealt with these issues in my life. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that I connected that scene when she goes to the dinner, and again, I was with Jamie Lee much more so than I was when I first watched it. I was like, I have PTSD about the 2016 election. And you know about this. Yeah. And, you know, November 3rd is just around the fucking corner, literally around mm -hmm, the corner. Mm -hmm. And when 2016 happened, I drank the world that night. It was so confusing and traumatizing. And I never expected that to happen. And I think we all collectively. We were all in shock. We were we all were... in shock in complete shock. And I'm gonna say this, I always do a sober, or I do like a dry January. I've been doing it for I think seven years now. I did mm -hmm. it when Trump was inaugurated. I don't give a shit what happens no. in January. There is no dry January in 2021. Not doing it. I'm strong veto, no. I'm either drinking because we all have to move to another country. Yeah, we're drinking on a beach in Portugal drinking, or we're drinking, <laughs> drinking, drinking in celebration. I'm drinking with Harris and Maya Rudolph on SNL. <laughs> I'm going to have a martini ready for Aunt Kamala. <laughs> Mamala. <laughs> so I don't know. Or Joe. I Who knows? I'm either going to be drinking <laughs> for success or drinking for failure. Um, Usually how it goes. Wait, so let's talk about, um, let's go back to these podcasters, not us, but the, the Brits who they're at the cemetery poking around and asking about Judith Myers. Because once again, I felt that goes back to um, news sources pre the New York Times article and Ronan Farrow and all that, that jazz of just like getting the sensationalist story as opposed to the victim's side. And mm -hmm. I thought that that cemetery scene hit a little bit harder this time around. And then when they died. Oh, interesting. Okay. Right? And, no, and, no, that's good. That's good. Because I think you brought a point. The movie's telling you, you need to focus on the victim's story, not you trying to sell a product exactly. because it's cool and exciting. Mm -hmm. And so serial killer killed some people, mm -hmm. which is very 90s, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very 90s perspective, mm -hmm. a very scream perspective. Yeah. Right? So after they're at the cemetery and they get what they need to get, and there's this fabulous black actress there, and she, she mentions Bernie Mac, doesn't she? Yes, that was my line here. She mentions that Bernie Mac was um, buried somewhere, like, oh, these other people have Bernie Mac at their cemetery. We don't have, we just, she was kind of trying to um, stage the fact that the only famous victim that they have in their cemetery is Judith Myers. Mm -hmm. so she mentions other cemeteries. And I, I had to rewatch that and figure out which cemetery she was referring to, but she does mention Bernie Mac. So what did you and take was, from that? She says that Bernie Mac is buried in some other cemetery that's not as famous as theirs. But well, You know what I got from that? And this could totally be me just deep analyzing in 2020. But I was like, of course, these international podcasters are more interested in the death of some white bitch than a very famous and well-loved black man. <laughs> that's what I got from that this time around. I know that was not the intent, but that's how I... Also, didn't Bernie Mac play the Charlie's Angels person in the, in the Charlie's oh, Angels? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's three awesome. This is a movie about three women. There's a Charlie's Angels situation. (laughs) And Jamie Lee was in Charlie's. I mean, we could go all day on this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I think that's where my mind went. Oh, wow. We both went different in the cemetery. Okay. There's also right, I think, before or after this scene, there's that scene where they introduce uh, Will Patton's character. He's the deputy yes, uh-huh. um, who was how apprehended Michael Myers. And he's kind of the focus of this movie. But you get all these other um, black actors at the convenience store. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? Yes. The pinball machine. Yeah. Um, and later on, you get introduced to the sheriff who's actually black with mm-hmm. his like, cowboy hat. Yeah. Um, and... Again, you there's a lot of black actors in this movie that are not central to the movie. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that all these actors are coming back for the sequel and they're central to the sequel. Oh, I hope so. I love the fact that David Goddard, and he knew this, he planned this. He has all these black actors on the fringes who are then going to become central in the sequel. I love when that. The white people die. I think that's great. And that's kind of cool. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I really like that. Very curious to see because what's going to Because for the longest time, I mean, as we've discussed on this podcast, that a lot of 80s horror films, there's, you know, there's the typical black guy that dies first in a lot of horror movies. It's been a trope. There are a lot of directors that have fought for inclusion, but usually studios say, nope, we're not interested. No, thanks. Um, it's been a very long road to include minorities and not just sell it as a black film or a Latino film or a gay film. So I'm really, I'm very much looking forward to having these characters peppered into this mainstream movie, this very extremely well done movie and be like, okay, we're going to do a callback to these characters. We're keeping true to the genre. And then we're also going to have some inclusion and these actors are all phenomenal. So why not run with it? So I'm really excited for for the future. And I, and I think this is something that I'm seeing everywhere. Like I'm going to have a little footnote right now. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft Country on HBO Max, mm-hmm. Fargo, Watchmen. Fargo is my life right now. I love, oh my love, God. love Fargo. So <laughs> I love it. This season's the best season. I mean, every season's just so good in its own way, but this season I am living for it. Anyways, continue. And we'll talk about it after Later. The well, we'll have drinks and talk things about Things to say. <laughs> I do too. Um, but my, my point is that we're seeing all these, uh, like the Watchmen, the limited series from last year that won all the um, Emmys. Regina is another idea everything. where they turn this white narrative into a black narrative. Mm-hmm. And you know what? We're all here for it. So then let's talk about the death of these fo- of these podcasters. There's podcasters who die. The podcasters who die. So after they're at the cemetery, they reference, um, is it the first Halloween where the little girl goes into the bathroom, the gas station bathroom, and she's like, oh, spiders. And Michael Myers is in there. Like you see his feet under the bathroom stall. That's H2O. It's actually. H2O. Okay. Because <laughs> yes. I remember it's I was. It's H2O callback. Yes. It's an H2O callback. So, yeah, I couldn't remember which movie it was, but I was like, oh, that one really. Oh, spiders freak me the hell out. Because bugs love me. Bugs love me so much. They just bite the shit out of me. So I'm like, oh, I, I, that scene always stuck in my head. And I something I really like about this movie is that they do the little throwbacks while still being so into itself like it's such a an original 
piece and multi-layered but they're like okay here's something for the fans and if you hadn't seen it then cool new new thing for you new scare for you but if not you're going to think about this just a little fondly and then move on with the rest of the movie i thought the mixture of the old and the new was just really well done in this so of course so when ginger podcaster is killed in the bathroom i immediately went to like okay michael myers he's establishing a pattern he's going after women i mean he does kill non-discriminately but it's just for me and my anxiety i'm like oh he's in a women's bathroom there's like this kind of thing of safety in mm-hmm, a women's mm-hmm. bathroom you know and she's there in the stall and then the british guy podcaster comes in and and that old trope of the guys here she'll be okay immediately he gets killed in this very gruesome death which i mean come on look he's he's uh, he, does, he doesn't have a footballer physique. He's not one of those British people. He's more of a Doctor Who intellectual Oxford type. <laughs> Very attractive and lean and wily and doesn't look like he could hold his own against Michael Myers. But still that thought comes of, oh, what, what's been bred in my head about masculinity and feminism from the 80s you know, growing up is like, oh, the man's here. She'll be okay just for a brief second. And then you realize that just goes really quick out the window. And you're like, hell yeah, you need to be like Jamie Lee and fend for your fucking self. Like, you need to do this. Mm-hmm. Anyways, they both die a horrible, bloody death in the bathroom. And this is, so, not only in Halloween show, this is actually a scene that plays out in a lot of sequels because Michael always has to go get his overalls. He, like, he's, like, mechanic clothing. Oh, yeah, yeah. So every sequel has a moment like this. Yeah. Um, Halloween, he's the return get, of Michael he, Myers. He's got to put his face on. He's got to put, and this is his like makeup. Yeah. Because then he gets the mask at the end, right? Right. So, um, so I think this sequence, this entire sequence, is paying homage to that moment, which in the original is more more thrown away you see the, the tow truck driver you see him dead on the side of the road and his tow truck and that's how you know that he got his mechanic overalls mm-hmm. and then the mask is stolen from the um the drugstore right yeah, yeah. which they set up later on but this kind of idea of like oh michael needs to go get his mask and he needs to go get his mechanic overalls right it's in every movie so mm-hmm. this is paying homage to all those different versions that you saw a lot strongly to the one from H2O that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But one interesting thing that this version does, which I think you told me about this, I didn't even notice this when I first watched it. Okay. Where all these things going on in the background, where then when the guy comes in, he's killing the mechanic. Oh, that's right. Yes. And it's like really, it's like almost like the ghost from the haunting of Hill House that you don't really see. Right. That you have to you rewatch it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And this happens in this sequence. And I didn't pick up on that the first time I watched it, but maybe subconsciously you do, that there's this background violence. You see him kill all everyone in the sequence, but you don't know that you did unless you're paying attention to the background of the scene, which is also a good homage to the original Halloween where there's this foreground background situation mm-hmm. happening. So it's a very well-built scene. Mm-hmm. I agree. So he kills these two guys first mm-hmm. before he kills. Well, he first kills then the guy who comes to the rescue, like you said. Mm-hmm. And then she's the last one to die. The, mm-hmm. the ginger podcaster. 
But the movie focuses on the on the female kill. Mm-hmm. Everything else happens somewhat in the background. Exactly. And then he goes Again. to the podcaster's car, correct? Or he, he goes to where uh, they have the mask hidden. It's like in the, the trunk, satchel. The trunk, the trunk of the podcasters. Yes. Yes. yes, the trunk of the podcasters. And he has that beautiful, like what you pointed out, there's always that moment where he has to assume his identity. And this was really beautifully shot without even having, naturally, you're not going to see Michael Myers slash the shapes face. But even from that first shot where it's like the back of his head and, and British podcasters screaming, look at it, Michael, I thought, oh, we're getting a little like humanization in Michael Myers. We didn't know that he's he's getting into silver fox mode. Makes sense. But we're like, oh, you're a person, not the shape anymore. So he has this beautiful moment with the mask. And all he does that the whole entire frame is just the mask and the hands turning. And how you turn mm-hmm. something, you can it can be gingerly and with love. And here we've associated Michael Myers to not have feelings or anything like that, that he's just this dead inside monster. And we see that he's reassuming his identity. And, and honestly, I kind of brought this to, since this is a story about trauma and a very feminist tale, um, there's something that I feel whenever I put on my makeup, it's a relaxing and meditating experience for me. I mean, I don't do it every day, obviously during quarantine, I forgot how to do anything. I forgot how to brush my hair, but, but typically like I enjoy the, the process of getting made up and I know that I'm transforming slightly into a different identity, a little silence of the lambs, maybe, I don't know, like, it's just, you're, you're being something else. And so I saw that this time around that he's just like, all right, I'm going to go back to who I used to be. And now, yeah. Oh, no, no, finish. Well, no, and I was going to say, and then Jamie Lee is going to reclaim who she used to be. Oh, so they do have these parallels. Tell me, blow my mind. Well, when I saw this sequence, the trunk sequence that you're talking about, immediately in 2020, I thought of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. And you know what? Michael Myers is a Klansman. He's assuming his white supremacist <gasps> identity. Oh, Jesus. Wow. What? Putting on the mask. Oh, my God. Guys, Guillermo just mimicked putting on a hood slash mask. <laughs> wow. That is a horrific element. I think this movie... Or David Gordon Green's reimagining of Halloween has a lot to do with race hmm, and gender. Yeah. And this moment to me was like a white man assuming his identity as a white supremacist and ready to go for the kill. Oh, wow. I mean, That's these are spooky. the times we're living in, right? Oh. I, I was here when Charlottesville happened, just like, you know, a state away. So, yeah. Take them apples. Guys. We like to leave things on a light note, even though we're discussing this epically scary movie and relating it to very scary times. Um, So just on a happy note, Guillermo, on the count of three, I feel like we should say the best line in Halloween. I know what you're thinking and you know what I'm thinking. And if not, this will sound really fucking messy, but we'll just cut it. But I think I know what you're going to say. So, okay. All right. Best line Ready? out of the entire series. All right. I'm going to go one, two, three, and you do it. One. The keys. <laughs> the keys. <laughs> we all know it's all about the motherfucking keys. <laughs> that just made me laugh so hard. <laughs>
All right, guys. I hope you're driving and you have the keys. Come back to part two. It's going to get messier. We're going to drink a little bit more. The election's coming. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.